Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Essential 11, as always, brought to you by Acton Academy, Acton Academy Placer, Apogee Strong, and our friends over at discoverpraxis.com. Uh, what a treat today. I got to meet this uh, man and spend a week with him uh, late in 2021. Uh, and just became an even bigger fan than I already had been. Uh, the man's name is Mr. Stephen Mansfield. He is a best-selling author, uh, leadership expert, uh, quite literally a man who is uh, paid to be the leader and mentor to the world's leaders and mentors. Um, this man has uh, done it all uh, as far as leadership goes and continues to to do it and you're going to see why uh, his poise his uh, his grace his generosity uh, his authenticity uh, his experience his wisdom all those things shine through uh, within moments of meeting him and you're going to hear it here too in the conversation that he had uh, with myself and the young men of apogee strong so extremely extraordinarily grateful for this conversation with the one and only mr stephen mansfield Mr. Mansfield, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good to see you. It is good to see you as well. Man, I am uh, absolutely honored uh, by you coming on here. It, it is very much appreciated. Really, well, really. My, my privilege. I, I love what you do. I love you. I'm looking forward to talking to your guys. Oh, this is awesome, man. And I, you know, it's for, for you gentlemen, and I got to tell you guys a little bit before, um, it was a it was a pleasure getting to to meet you. you. Know when we were down there in Mexico and getting ready for uh, this thing we're kicking off in May. Um, you know, it was a, it was a roundtable of just a bunch of really really good men, um, as you know. And uh, but your, you know, the wisdom that you were, were sharing with us and the nobility, you know, that that is just very very apparent um, in in who you are, you know, those things are only earned through they're earned through experience and they're earned through authenticity and they're earned through, you know, these are God given, um, gifts and attributes. And, and I'm just, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, so, you know, again, it, it is just a, it is just a big honor, my friend. So thank you. Well, again. You're very kind. You're very kind. Thank you. Yes, sir. And let's, let's, let's not tell, tell people everything that happened in Cancun. All yes, right. I, not everything. We definitely don't want to. These guys have gotten to meet, you know, Ray and, and some of these guys, so they can they can let their imagination <laughs> run wild with that, right? Yeah. Get, yeah. It won't take too much of a stretch. So, <laughs> um, so kind of the way that we usually run these is, is you and I will get to kind of chat and go back and forth a little bit because we want to hear about you. We want to hear, you know, want these guys to get, uh, to get some of the insight from Mr. Stephen Mansfield, and then these guys will come with better questions than uh than i ever have so we'll just kind of go if you're okay for for an hour um we'll probably run good. for an hour if you're good. I'm good i'm yours that is awesome so we'd love to start and i know this is almost a silly almost a silly question for a man who has gotten to do so much has achieved so much has accomplished so much has been so many places but we really like to start with kind of that x-men origin story you know, so to speak, kind of the, you know, you're a young man. These guys are 13, 15, 17, 19. You know, you're a young man. I know you were growing up in Germany for a little bit. And, and so what were those experiences like? And then, you know, kind of bring us through for a few minutes up into what kind of things you're up to now, if you don't mind. I don't mind a bit. Uh, I was born to a U.S. Army officer as my father, and he was an intelligence officer and he was special forces. And so we lived abroad most of my life. And the most significant part of that was living in Berlin during the Cold War. 
So I could go to the Berlin Wall, get up on a platform that they provided for people to look over the wall, and I could see the difference between the free world with all its prosperity and wealth and you know joy, frankly, mm-hmm. um, and then look into the dark, dank, 60 years behind uh, buildings and technology of the East and the heaviness and darkness in the faces of the people and the desperation. And one of the things that marked me was when I would spend the night with my German friends who lived near the wall, our house wasn't near the wall. Um, Sometimes at night I would hear a machine gun fire and that meant that somebody was trying to cross no man's land um, to freedom. People were giving up their lives for freedom. So that really marked me. You can imagine I was only 16, 17 years old at the time. And that really marked me. So came back to the States. Uh, you can't tell on the camera here, but I'm bigger than the average bear. I'm about 6'4", 280 right now. All of that's not muscle. I wish it was. Back in the day, I was pretty good, job. Uh, got recruited to play football at Iowa, um, but uh, turned that down, went a different direction with my life. And um, in time, I pastored for about 20 years and then uh, transitioned into what I'm doing now. Uh, I, I, I was the kind of guy who enjoyed pastoring. I'm a devoted Christian, but I also uh, felt that I was meant to have a more direct impact on the country, work in politics, work in media, write books. Um, and I don't mean this in some cloying, you know, brown nosing way, but, but know people who were in power so I could influence them. Yeah. And so um, in, in 2002, I wrote a book called The Faith of George W. Bush, and it just blew up. I saw it sold millions of copies and that repositioned me. So now I'm a regular on Fox and CNN commentary. Um, I consult and advise a lot of people in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write more books uh, I'm recently on men. I'll go, I'm probably going to write a book on Zelensky, the current president of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, Ukraine. Uh-huh. And I run some foundations, run some businesses, a, a very, very multifaceted life. Um, I, I'm a senior fellow for public leadership at a university. I've got a doctorate. So that's, that's the flyover of my life. It's busy, it's diverse, but I'm very grateful for it. And I live in, in DC. And then I live in my other home in Nashville. My wife and I joke, we go to DC to get schizophrenic and go to DC to uh, Nashville to get normal. So, um, that's (laughs) kind of my life. That sounds about right. And now that I'm an official Southerner out here in hey, North Carolina too, so I'm going to have to come, uh, come visit you. I'm not too far away, man. So I have to come visit you at some point or have you guys come visit, man. It would be, it would be an honor. Come, come, come on, baby. We'll do some boot scooting. Yes, sir. I like it. <laughs> uh, that, so, I mean, I, I'm sure you guys heard, I mean, that was a flyover of a massively impactful existence right here, right? That is what a life actually looks like versus somebody who is just kind of doing that day to day. Um, and, and it's an amazing thing that that perspective on freedom that you gained, right? You're, you're there in Germany, you're seeing the wall and these guys are too young. I mean, I remember I was a young buck when the, when the wall fell, I didn't even fully understand the gravity of it at that time. Right. But I have come to um, obviously greatly appreciate freedom. And I always say freedom is my favorite F word. Um, you know, you go in, you're, you're a pastor for 20 years, all about freeing people to be who God created them to be. How does that love and respect and, and genuine perspective of freedom, how has that helped, hindered, challenge you as you've gone into realms, politics, and media that are not necessarily always known for the love of freedom. Like, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm absolutely committed to freedom. Absolutely. uh, Every day, think of that image that I 
told you about the difference between East and West, mm-hmm. but I, I live in a world and I work in a world where I'm more often with people who don't agree with me than I'm with people who do agree with me. Mm. I do. A, I do a lot in the Muslim world. For example, I'm a yep. Christian. They're Muslim. We respect each other, but we're not the same. Um, I'm in Washington, D.C., where we joke here, it's the People's Republic of Washington, D.C., very, for the most part, left-leaning, especially with this particular administration. Um, I'm a conservative. So often I'm not with people that I agree with, but I see myself as a change agent. I think that's one of the things that's really important. I think it's kind of an immature attitude to say, I only want to be with my tribe. Mm -hmm. I only want to be with people I agree with. I only want to be people who tell the same jokes I do and so on. That just, quite frankly, for me, uh, gets boring. Uh, and, and if I'm, if I'm with everybody who's like-minded with me, I mean, that might be nice for a night just with a bunch of buddies, you know, hanging around, but it's, it it means I'm not changing lives. It needs, it means I'm not making a difference. If I hang with 10 guys all the time who would think of exactly like I do, we're not changing anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm more often with people who differ from me than I am with people who are like me. And the way I can do that is I want to be the guy who wins them. I at least want to be the guy, even if I don't change their views where they say, well, I guess you can be a conservative and be a really nice guy, or I guess you can be a Christian and not be a jackass or whatever the, their biases are. You understand what I'm saying? Sure. So, um, so the thing that, that fuels me is I can believe somebody is wrong, still love and respect them and still want to be in their life. I play racquetball with guys, completely different religions from me, completely different politics from me. But when we're sitting in the sauna, we're having a heart to heart conversation. I find common ground. I try to bring change. Yeah. Uh, and I and, and then I try to cultivate really enjoying people. I mean, mm-hmm. that that group we were with at Cancun, really about as diverse as a group of guys as I've been with. Absolutely, I love every single one of them. Here I am, a Christian. At least one of the guys is like a neo pagan. I mean, couldn't be more yeah. opposite. But I love I, I love them all. And if they have got in trouble tomorrow and called me, I'd I'd be on a plane. You know what I mean? Um, so that I, I try to cultivate a love of people that I disagree with. And then I try to think in terms of bringing change to their lives as I lovingly can. And that, frankly, motivates me, but also makes me um, it gives grant helps me achieve success. Mm-hmm. Because when you're constantly criticizing, constantly ticked off, constantly angry, constantly griping at people, you're not going to change anything. You're going to live in a, in a, you know, some hut by yourself out in the sticks. So I try to do the opposite, cultivate a bit of personality and a bit of fun. You've been around me. I like to joke a little bit. I mean, I take life seriously, but I like to have a little fun. So um, that way you build bridges to people and you can bring change. And 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 by the way, I won't go on too long here, but it's exactly what we see President Zelensky doing right now in the Ukraine. He gets on the on the he does a big screen broadcast to the parliament in Britain. What does he do? He quotes Churchill. He talks to the Germans. He talks about World War II. You know, he talks to the United States. You know, he's quoting Martin Luther King. He, he builds a bridge to whoever he's talking to. And look what's happening. This, this country that's got a military about the quarter of the size of the Soviet Union has actually created a stalemate because this president is being a man and he's doing it by reaching to people who aren't like him. So thus endeth the sermon. But that's what I try to do with my no, life. That was, no, I think that was beautifully said, sir. And like you said, you know, you're building you're building this bridge. And that was one of the things I wrote down as you were talking is that you genuinely you you cultivate that genuine love for people. And I think that's something that um, is very, very obvious. That's not something that can be faked. Right. That's yeah. something that's very uh, it's very obvious. You feel it when somebody does that. And, and that's what allows you to build that bridge. It's what allowed it's what allowed all of us to sit in that room in Mexico. Everybody coming from these vast backgrounds, you had paganism and you had LDS and you had Orthodox and we had, you know, we had everything under the sun. 
but it was that genuine love and that genuine um, coming together around the mission, right? That yes. Was, yes. And I like you talking about building up versus tearing down. I think that's why, um, you know, I don't hear a whole lot of people that are usually upset with, you know, Stephen Mansfield. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a, I think it's a powerful testimony to your consistency in that. So we've got young men here going through this program and they're taking on projects and they're taking on challenges, right. And they're, they're meeting with, you know, the world's best leaders every single week. And then they go out into a culture um, that doesn't necessarily respect that. They, that is telling them, Hey, because we disagree on something rather than looking for what we do agree on and still being able to come together because we disagree um, we're going to put up more obstacles and more barriers. Do you think it's a, it's harder for young men in this current age to go forward and be men of nobility and grow to men of, of nobility than it was um, maybe when I was growing up or when you were growing up and I know you're not that much older than I am, but you think it's a harder thing for them now um, than it is? And if so, why? Yeah, I, do, I do think it's harder because they've got less external help. Mm. Um, which means now they can still do it. The same heights can be achieved. The same degrees of noble masculinity can be accomplished, but they've got less help. It used to be, you know, I, I don't mind, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be 64 this June. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a military context. I've got men everywhere saying, be a great man, coaching me, speaking to me everywhere. I go to a school. It's the same value system. We love you. We want you to be a man, do what God's made you to do. And I mean, I'm at the public schools, but that's how they talked. Um, you know what I'm saying? I played football. I had great coaches. Now you're more likely to be opposed in your schooling and your public schooling anyway. Mm -hmm. um, toxic masculinity, manhood is a, a danger to society, that kind of stuff. So you've got to gravitate to guys like you. You've got to find coaches. You've got to find mentors. Once you get hooked into good mentors and coaches, and once you get a vision for what noble masculinity means, then the same heights can be achieved. Great things can be achieved in this generation, but it's harder in terms of the coaching and the reinforcement not being as readily available. It's there. And, yeah. and once you're hooked in, man, the fuel works, but, but what's, what's not as readily available is that for me, it was just like falling off a log. I walk out the door and I've got yeah. everybody encouraging me to be a man, be a great man. Yeah. Um, that is not the case for the average guy today. Mm. So if you have got, um, you know, a, a young man who is coming out and, and is really has kind of gravitated towards these mentors and has taken on these projects, taken on these challenges, is really kind of orienting himself. He's trying to become who God created him to be, right? And he comes to you and he goes, all right, Mr. Mansfield, I love who you are, all you stand for, what you do. And ultimately, I would want to come work for you. What are the qualities you want to see in that young man that would make you say, you know, I might take a chance on this young guy. You know, one of the main things that I admire is a guy who's coachable. Now, that sounds all light and easy, but I need to be able to kick your backside and have you bounce back. I need for you to tell me the truth. I, 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 don't, I, I like tough guys. I, I don't mean tough as in like, you know, gangsters, but I mean, you know, people who speak the truth. So if we're going to get into a relationship where I'm going to coach you or you're going to work for me, Hey, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to take good care of you. You're going to, you're going to make good money. You're going to have some exciting experiences. I do exciting things. But what I need to know to know that you're safe, what I need to know to know that we really can work together is that you can be coached, that you're not hypersensitive, 
that you trust me, that I'm not just going to beat on you for entertainment. But if I say, don't do that again, or go back to your room, change clothes. I told you not to wear that. Come wear this. We're going to meet the president right now. You can't be in, you know, flip flops, uh, you know, or whatever. I need to know that you're coachable with joy, that you're a happy warrior. Um, and that, and that you are willing to take advice from me. Now, I may not always be right about everything in the universe, but I'm always in charge and I'll come back and apologize if I, if I don't mean that I'm, my manner is going to be something I have to apologize for, but I might've gotten the facts wrong about an event or something going on or the departure time or whatever. But still what I most need is that temper of spirit that says, I want to be here. I want to change, make me better. I'll be the best for you I can be. And once we've got that, anything is possible. What I don't need is surly and bitter and resentful and small and, you know, that kind of thing. I don't need a lot of whining and griping. I'm not harsh with people. I got to tell you, frankly, I got a tight staff of people who love working with me because it's a two-way street on on feedback and advice. And I'm generous. So we have a great day. And we're also doing exciting things. So it's fun to work with me. But the thing that that will kill it all, the cancer on the unity, the cancer on the effectiveness is some kind of mad resentment. You know, my uncle mistreated me. And so you, you know, you remind me of him and I can't deal with it. I mean, I don't mean to put that down. People who are abused, that needs to be dealt with. I love them. But I'm just saying I need people who are hungry to change, hungry to change, hungry to grow, will help me be better and are open to input from our team. And if, and if you're into that, we're going to fly. Good spot. I love that. And I love a happy warrior. Uh, that's something I wrote down. I love that description of that. No, I think I can. Have you always kind of gravitated towards that? Is that something that you think was, uh, was parent instilled? Was that something that was experientially instilled? Did you, you know, as a young man kind of entering the workforce, um, you know, for the, for the first time, did you come with that? Uh, kind of mentality or how did how that kind of develop? I actually had to learn it myself. The reason yeah. I'm so strong on this is that um, not to get too much into my own psychology, I had a good father who was not in any way harsh or, or damaging to me, but he was distant. And a lot of the reason he was distant uh, was that he was off at war. My father fought in Vietnam. He fought in Korea. He was special forces. He would disappear for months at a time. We didn't know when in Berlin, mom, we'd go home for dinner. Mom would say, well, dad's on maneuvers. That was the code language. He's on maneuvers. We didn't know what that meant. He might've been gone for six months for all we knew. Um, so he was just distant. So I had, I learned, I, I learned from other coaches and early on, I had the same kind of teenage rebellion everybody has. But as time went on, I began to realize these people are in my life to do me good. So whether they're sports coaches, business coaches, teachers who take an interest in me, older brothers at, the, at my university who taught me stuff, come here, you, you dress like a fool. Let me show you something. And that kind of stuff. Um, before long, I began to realize, you know, I, put, I, I saw it as a work of God. Uh, God brings different people in my life for different purposes. That's how I interpret it. Others, somebody else would interpret it differently. And so I pay attention. You know, Matt steps into my life. What's he got to teach me? What have I got to teach him? We're going to have some fun. We're going to be better when this relationship is, as this relationship progresses, hot dog, rather than being the sensitive, oh my gosh, you pick on me, you know, that kind of thing that we all have for a while, but we got to grow out of. And I probably stayed with it a little bit longer because my dad wasn't around. And when he was home, he was a little bit harsh, just a little bit harsh, you know, military commander type with his older son. So I I had to learn over time, Stephen, blow that off, man. Don't be so sensitive. Everybody's trying to help you grow up. And once I got that message in my soul, 
I people around me made me better. And I'll have to say, if I if I if I am at any admirable length, uh, height in my life, it's because of God and others. It's not because of any innate thing in me. It's because people came around and and poured stuff into my life and made a difference. That's for all of us. Amen. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Are there is there anybody and gentlemen? I'm going to have you go ahead and start putting uh, hands up now, if you would, and I'm going to start uh, start bringing you guys in too. But is there anybody right now? You know, I know you're surrounded by so many so many good human beings. Is there anybody right now that you're really really enjoying? Um, you know, you personally are learning from right now, or maybe somebody that you're really diving in and kind of reading their material, reading their stuff. Is there anybody right now that's really kind of feeding you? Well, I, I always have good people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading a lot of Malcolm Gladwell right now, Dave, yeah. uh, David and Elias, things like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, be coy here. The person who's most influencing my right now, I can't say his name, very, very, very famous um, and, and very well known. It just so happens that I'm in proximity and this person's taken an interest in me. Now here I am at 64 years old. I still got mentors. Yeah. And so, uh, but I shouldn't say this person's name. Sure. So I, I met this person. We started talking. Um, he got interested. What do you do? Okay, well, let's let, I'll see you again next time. Next time I saw him, he said, hey, I'm thinking about you. You know what you could do with that project you were talking about? You know what you could do when you work with the Kurds? Uh, and this person's a massively famous statesman person. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm being influenced by somebody. And, and then I, started, I got a phone call out of the clear blue. Listen, I was thinking about what you're doing. I'm thinking this is one of the most influential people in the world. And yeah. I'm getting a phone call because I'm on their mind. And that's just how it goes. Now it'll fade. This person won't be calling me, you know, for pizza next week. But right now, the most influential person in my life is somebody I just happened to meet, but they took an interest in some projects I'm engaged in and they're eager to see me be a success. So that'll last for a while. And then other mentors will come along. And the art of this is that you are able to recognize the moments. Mm. drink from it be grateful from it from it not expect it to last forever know it's going to change and more other other mentors will come into your life you know i had it's just the way we all are i had great seventh grade teachers and then eighth grade teachers came along i had great high school teachers and then college teachers so life is a university and and i believe that that's orchestrated by god and, and and uh and i've got tremendous people around me right now that's phenomenal. I love to hear that. And it reminded me of, of something when I, we've talked about it with the young men um, before. And I wish I remember who said it because I'd like to give them credit. But somebody said something along the lines of uh, every man has seven once in a lifetime opportunities that usually are the average of seven once in a lifetime opportunities that take place. And he's usually ready for none of them. Um, and I think having <laughs> your, you know, having your eyes open and understanding that it's going to be this revolving thing, but paying attention. So when these opportunities do come, understanding, man, this this may not last, but it's a once in a lifetime thing that I'm going to go ahead and ride out right now and take full advantage of. Um, it is just so powerful. That's phenomenal. And by the way, I saw Malcolm, uh, three, three, four weeks ago. Um, he and I were on a, uh, airplane together. Good. Uh, good. Uh, yeah. Very cool. Phenomenal author. Phenomenal guy. Very cool. Oh, I want to get some of these, uh, get some of the questions here from some of our young men. So Turner, you are up, sir, with Mr. Mansfield. Thank you, sir. And I love your story. It's a very amazing and unique one. And my question for you is I have a friend that's not exactly a believer, you could say. And what would be the best way to help him come and learn all the amazing things about Christ and just Christianity? Great question. I believe very much in the words of Mother Teresa, who said, preach the gospel and use words if you must. Mm -hmm. And so, in a sense, you are 
the epistle, you are the message by the way that you live. So my, my approach is get into people's lives and then live a distinct brand of Christianity that they can drink from without being necessarily preached to. If you and I have just met, you're not going to find me preaching to you. I'm just going to mention in passing my church. I'm going to mention in passing uh, something that happened in my life. I'm going to say, well, I'm, I'm heading over here because I want to help these people. It's just something I think God's given me to do. And I move right on. I don't stop and do an altar call. I don't wait for organ music. You understand what I'm saying? I just, I'm just, I just try to live the gospel in front of them. And, you know, the New Testament tells us to make the gospel attractive. And that's what I do. So I, we, we Christians are people of words. We're people of, of a written book. Um, and so we have a tendency to be a little preachy. But I, I think in, the, in our generation, especially where there's so much cynicism about Christianity and conservative Christians in particular, um, I think we've got to reinterpret for them by how we live uh, what our faith is about. So when they find me serving them, loving them, helping them, encouraging them, having ideas for them, mentioning and passing how I live, that we go to church, that my wife and I were praying about them last night, that kind of stuff, just real quick, just been passing while still being maybe the coolest people they know. I'm just joking about that, but, you know, being people they can relate to, um, then I, I find that people are more ready to come to Christ. So I appreciate your passion to do that. I do okay. very much. Thank you, sir. That was amazing. You betcha, buddy. You betcha. Awesome. It's that whole, you know, your, your actions speak so loud. I cannot hear what you say, you know, kind of concept. And that's something that, you know, for all of you guys, you know, you pay attention to somebody long enough. It's their actions. Their actions are going to tell you who they are, right? You know, you see who they, they hang around with. That gives you a clue. You hear the things they say, and, and that's going to give you a little bit of a clue. But if you watch them long enough and you see the things they actually do, you're going to understand who they are. You, you, you know, people can be hypocritical, unfortunately, but they can't be hypocritical every day, all day, forever. Um, you know, their, their, their actions are going to show, you know, and, and that's just, um, and that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you guys to show yourselves as the amazing humans that, that you guys are and, and the future leaders that we need, you know, it's those actions that you guys have taken every week. That's beautiful. All right. Benaya, you're up, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. So much for getting on this call. Um, I mean, I love all the input you've put in on how a Christian should preach the gospel by being the epistles. Um, but I was wondering when you were younger in uh, like Berlin in uh, the time uh, that you were in, what was your faith with God like? I mean, were your parents Christians or was it something that you kind of came into yourself? Uh, great question. Uh, I grew up in the military, as I've, as I've said, and I, so we went to military chapels. So God, it was God country, uh, you know, family kind of thing. Um, it was formal. It's probably the best way to say it. My father would have his uniform on. We'd go to military chapels. My father was usually a high-ranking commander, so everybody kind of deferred to him. We'd sing the hymns. We'd hear a sermon. We'd go home. It was part of what you did as military duty, but it wasn't for me as a teenager, a heart faith, it wasn't patterning my life after Jesus. It wasn't um, a transforming experience. And then at the age of 18, uh, being a big football jock, as I've said, I got involved in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And they really put, the, they really put it on me in terms of who are you? Are you following Jesus? Are you messing around? Are you just, you know, is it just God and football for you or what's going on? And I had a radically transforming experience with Jesus at the age of 18. And that's when it became real for me. So best way to say it is earlier on, good parents, a consciousness of God in, in military chapel every week, um, God and country. I certainly understood the difference between the God-oriented West 
and the godless East as I was standing there in Berlin looking at East and West uh, Germany. But it wasn't until I had a radical experience with Jesus and 18 years old became a Christian, a deep Christian, that my life really began to change. I began to understand the world in distinctly Christian terms and, and, and become a disciple is probably the best way to say it. So that was the transformation for me. I wish it had happened a lot younger when I was a lot, a lot younger, but it was beautiful when it happened. And, it, and, that, and by the way, that's why I turned down that football scholarship at Iowa um, and instead went to a Christian university at the, at the age of 18. So that's, that's my journey. Well, thank you, sir, so much. Um, just out of curiosity, which university did you end up going to? Well, it's a kind of a funny story. I, my mother had become a Christian before me, and she was very enamored of Oral Roberts, uh, who was very big, big evangelist at the time. And he'd started a university. So without me knowing about it, she applied for me. Can you believe it? Breaking about 92 state and federal laws, she applied <laughs> for me to Oral Roberts University. And when I became a Christian... And began to realize I didn't want to, I mean, I might have had a career in football, but I, that's not really what I wanted to do. I took the acceptance, the, the acceptance letter that came from ORU, and I went to Oral Roberts University. And I got to tell you, it was a magnificent experience for me. I had a tremendous experience at Oral Roberts University um, and still help that school as I can. So it was not one I would have chosen out of my own, uh, of my own volition because I barely knew who they were, uh, but it turned out to be the right thing for me. And since then, I've earned a couple of masters and a doctorate. All of my experiences at schools have been really, uh, really great. But ORU laid the foundation for it all. And, and it was really good because they, they focus on discipling their students, not just educating them. And that was important for me at the time. I also, by the way, uh, became a bodyguard for Oral Roberts for a little while. They, they used some of the bigger, more athletic students uh, so that it didn't look like he was surrounded by armed guards because, you know, he's trying to reach people. No kidding. So, so I was a bodyguard for Oral Roberts for a while, kind of, a, kind of an unusual experience. How cool is that? That's awesome. That's amazing. All right. Thank you, sir. You betcha, buddy. That's very cool. And mom, good shout out to mom for breaking all of those laws as a good mom would. You betcha. Oh, yeah, man. That's awesome. No, that's, that's great to hear. How many of these conversations, and Zev, I'm going to get right to you, sir. Um, how many conversations around uh, faith do you end up having in kind of your, your daily circle at this point, right? And you're, you're dealing so much in politics and media. Is that something that, you know, uh, do you experience that where some of the guys that you rub elbows with kind of want to talk, you know, maybe offline about that? Is that something that's relatively prevalent or not as much? It is, it is far more prevalent than you would think. And it's quite prevalent for me. In fact, this is one of the things that moves me. I will do a uh, news show with the famous news person. When the cameras go off because of what we've talked about, they'll lean forward and say, you know, I've been reading the Bible a lot recently, and I remember my grandmother gave me a Bible and told me I should read it every day, and I didn't for decades, but I'm really reading it a lot. What do you think is causing that? This, mm -hmm. is a, this will be a famous news person who's known to be secular and rather left-leaning. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I'll, I'll, I've had mullahs in the Middle East say, Stephen, you live a kind of a different Christianity. Tell me a little bit more about it. I know you're an evangelical. You don't have to hide that. Just tell me, tell me who you are. Um, they, they prompt it. And it's yeah. because it goes back. It goes back to our first question. Yeah. The more I just uh, be relatable and yet be open about my Christianity without being preachy, and let them kind of drink as long as they want to drink. I mean, one of the things that we say in the church these days is we need to have a big front porch, meaning we need to let people hang out with us without having to come into the inner room, so to speak. In other words, I want people to be able to, you know, eat and have a glass of wine, smoke a stogie with me, talk about books, work out, and that'll create some surface space where they can hang with me. Um, without it having to be come to church. 
And then what will happen is they'll eventually, you know, initiate the conversation themselves. Most of the conversations about faith I have are prompted by people who aren't people of faith themselves, publicly anyway. And and yet privately, there's always something going on. So uh, I live by the words uh, that I, I, you never know what God's really doing. Uh, He's working in everybody's life. And I just kind of pick them up where they are. So the short answer is I have a lot of conversations about faith and they're almost always prompted by a person who would surprise you. Yeah. That's interesting. I love that. All right, Zeb, you're up, sir. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the call. Could you describe like the differences between uh, West Germany and East Germany uh, that you could see after seeing over the Berlin wall and what unique perspective did it provide for you uh, as a 16 year old by seeing that? Yeah. No, great question. Thank you for that. Uh, so you, you, you are familiar with the rise of the Soviet Union. And then after World War II, a city by the name of, uh, that you've already mentioned, Berlin, was divided up amongst all of the allies uh, who fought in World War II. So there was the Soviet section and the British section and the French section and the American section uh, of the city. Well, the Soviet section got carved off. The East Germans and the Soviets built a big wall and said, this is now communist territory. And the rest of the city was free. But I know it's kind of confusing, but the whole city was in East Germany. The whole city was was in communist territory. And so where I ended up living was in a little island of freedom in the middle of East Germany that was this communist country. So communism is a system of government that dominates people's lives. The state owns everything. There's no private property. There's no individual freedom. There's no religion, religious freedom. Uh, And normally it produces a great deal of poverty and tyranny. So in Berlin, it was the most you, you could actually stand on a line, as I say, and see the difference between the prosperous West and the dominated, dark, oppressive, fear ridden East. It was just there. Literally, there was a line. Um, a no man's land about 50 feet wide. You could look on one side, look on the other. So quite literally, lots of depression in the East, lots of poverty. People stood in long bread lines for food. Um, They would wait for opportunities to escape to the West, and most of them were killed. Some of them made tremendous escapes. One one family literally sewed a a balloon, a hot air balloon, and sailed over the wall into freedom. It's a famous Disney movie now. but it was it broke your heart to look into the east and see the darkness. And sometimes there'd be dead bodies uh, sitting in the no man's land between east and west because the East German and Russian guards had shot um, somebody trying to escape. And just very quickly, I'll tell you that we we had a high school, American high school there, and we would go play another Amer- other American high schools that were in free Germany in West Germany. We would have to take a train through communist territory from Berlin into West Germany to get to those other high schools and play football and basketball. So the scenes that you see in movies where there are barking German shepherds and people looking under the train cars with mirrors and guards running around with with machine guns, I lived in that all the time. Every time we went somewhere to play football, basketball, or baseball, we would uh, go through East German territory and East German and Russian guards would check the train all the time to make sure that nobody was trying to escape and all that kind of thing. So in the 1970s, I ended up having an experience that was very much like, or at least I could see what it was like to live in tyranny and oppression and lack of freedom. And uh, that it changed me forever. 
changed me forever. And it makes me fight for a free society in, in the United States. And it also makes me want to see individuals be free so they can fulfill their destiny. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's about more than just economic systems, although that's part of it. It's also about the general attitude towards freedom and people fulfilling their destiny. So great question, buddy. Thank you. Wow. That's, that's phenomenal. So um, out of, you know, I want to make sure I preface this the right way because out of respect for who you rub elbows with, what you do, um, you know, obviously don't give anything more than, than you can. And I also um, want to preface it with, I'm, it doesn't matter which way the world is going. I'm eternally optimistic um, just because I know, you know, again, I, I know who, I know who God is. I know what's going on. I'm not, I, I'm eternally optimistic. Things can go sideways. I, I feel fine. And I know, uh, you know, you're much of the same. With that being said, optimistic, pessimistic on kind of the, the, the general sense of where the country's going right now in terms of freedom. And I know a lot of people are worried about freedoms being stripped um, as far as, you know, uh, any kind of overreach, things like that. And I don't, again, I don't want to go anywhere that you don't necessarily want to go, but, you know, right. is there general optimism, pessimism? Um, what are you kind of, what are you kind of seeing, feeling, you know, personally? I am very optimistic. Uh, and I'm optimistic, not, not only because I think there are strong foundations in this country and the majority of the people are oriented to the right way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean that politically right. I just mean sure. the accurate, correct way of thinking, right. yep. uh, you know, what the, the ideas of the great Western canon. Um, but I'll also say that what's happening is that some of the, some of the experience, experiments with leftism, some of the experiments with socialism, some of the leftist sort of ideologies that have been tried in our American government, they have failed. And the country knows that. Uh, sometimes you have to have people try things that you're opposed to before they'll see the error of them. Mm. And so we've, we've messed around with open borders. It ain't working. Mm-hmm. We've messed around with gender distinctions. It ain't working. You know, and, and by the way, people, it's a little bit funny here in D.C. because the people most upset about trans swimmers winning women's sports are not people. I mean, the people on the right are commenting on, but the people I know that they're angriest are the people on the left who are mo- who are in favor of it some time ago. And now they see what it's going to do to women's sports. So I'm optimistic in part. Um, I'm always optimistic because I believe in a God. I believe in the power of, 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 of the right ideas. Um, but I'm also optimistic now because I think that many of these things are being tried and found wanting mm-hmm. um, and it just ain't working. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that everything I believe is 100 percent right. But some of the nutsy stuff that we're seeing attempted in our society is failing right. and everybody's taking note. And one of the things I love about the, the, the people like the young guys on this call, uh, like millennials, like Gen X, et cetera, um, is that they come into public life with a little less ideological orientation. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, what works, what's true, what's right, right. just wrong. Yep. And they haven't read 50,000 books. They, they just want to, okay, I'm willing to learn, but, but I want to know what's fair, what's right, what's going to work, let's get this done. So a lot of leftist ideas are being chucked, not because folks have read you know, 60 conservative books, but because they can look at their own eyeballs and say, that's not working. Or they can look at the photograph of a baby in the womb with new technologies that we have to do that and say, it's a human being. What are you talking about? So I don't mind talking about what I believe. Uh, I debate a lot of people and have a lot of discussions, 
I'm a conservative and I'm conservative because I think that's how the world works. That doesn't mean I'm happy about everybody in the GOP and DC and how some of them are nitwits. And some of my friends who are in the GOP and very prominent are nitwits and they make say silly things and they, you know, engage in political games just like the other side does. But for the most part, um, I'm confident in the future because there's a God, because there's a rising generation like what's on this call. Um, and because a, a good deal of the West is saying, you know what, we tried this stuff. It just doesn't work. We got to go back to tried and true values. And I think there's a transition happening. Beautiful. Well said, sir. Well said. Thank you. Yes, sir. Mr. Palmer Goodwin, go ahead, sir. Thank you very much, sir, for coming on this call. Um, my question is, what was the biggest sacrifice you ever had to make in your whole life? Mm. Palmer comes with the great big bomb of a question. Yeah, oh, my yeah. gosh. Good <laughs> job, Palmer. Um, the biggest sacrifice I ever had to make. Hmm. Let me think about that just for a quick second. I have time and again have to turn down positions of visibility and maybe even some wealth to do what I believe was right. Now, I'm not saying that as, you know, like I'm whining over it, but in my, in what I do in life, I'm offered a lot of positions. Um, it's not because I'm anything that big. It's just that once you get to a point where you're a New York times bestselling author and you known on the news and people see you a lot, um, folks say, well, let's get that guy on our board. Or let's get that guy into this. Well, let's bring that guy here. Let's get that guy to start a thing with us and put his name on the letterhead and all that kind of stuff. And I've had some pretty cool things, uh, some pretty powerful things offered to me. But when you know your direction, you know your values, you know what you're meant to do, um, that not only tells you where you should go, it also tells you where you shouldn't go, right? Mm. So one plus one equals two, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't equal anything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? It tells, it tells you what it does equal. It also tells you what it doesn't equal. One plus one does not equal five. Mm. So once I know who I am, what I'm about, what I'm meant to do, what I'm called to do, who I serve, then I know what I'm not meant to do. And I'm not saying people are offering me immoral roles, but I'm not meant to be on the board of Colgate and help them make toothpaste better, as noble as that is, and somebody needs to do it because I'm called to do other stuff. And I turned down a job kind of like that, uh, a role of being on a, an advisory board would have been massive money. I wasn't meant to do it. So the biggest sacrifices in, in my life, Palmer, have been turning down roles that weren't optimal for me. Mm -hmm. And I imagine they total millions of dollars, all totaled. I'm not saying at one job, I'm not that valuable. Um, but I have total peace. I have total peace. It was the right thing to do. I don't grieve it every day. I was, I was able to say, thank you. It's so kind of you to offer that to me. It's not what I'm supposed to do. And move on. I made sure my wife and I were in agreement about it. I'll always, you know, we, I, I really believe in a husband and wife agreement. And, um, and I turned them down. So those, those, whether you're talking about financially or in terms of something big that would have been highly visible, those are the, those are the things that have been the, the, the costliest sacrifices for me. I, I haven't served in the military. I haven't had to risk my life necessarily. I've done it a few times in other ways. I haven't had to, you know, I haven't had somebody shot next to me, those kinds of big sacrifices. Um, but I've had to turn down some things in the pursuit of what I believe is right for my life. And that's, that's another kind of sacrifice that we'll all have to make. Mm, so good. Thank you, sir. You bet, buddy. Awesome. Well done. All right, Aiden, you're up, sir. 
Thank you, Mr. Mansfield, for coming on this call. It's, it really is a tremendous pleasure to get to speak to someone like you and to really to get to speak to such a man of such really tremendous character, right? And, and just a, a Christian who's not ashamed of being a Christian since it's such an uncommon thing in today's society. But with that being said, having written as many books as you've written and extremely books, uh, extremely successful books at that, what do you believe is what, one of the more important points of effective communication and in, in written form? It's a great question. Uh, I believe that great writing is where you can see, smell, taste, feel what's being said. In other words, it applies to all the senses. And what I do in my writing that I think is a little bit distinct, I, I, I get good stories, I tell interesting things, but I write in such a way that people can step into it and feel it. Mm. I have lots of people stop me in airports and say, I wept my way through that story. Or they read my book, The Search for God and Goodness, and they're inspired to start a business because they were able to step into a story. And that's, by the way, why I've chosen to write history books where I'm telling the story rather than just, I, I won't write a book that's 10 ways to start a business. Instead, I write a book called The Search for God and Guinness, where I tell the Guinness story and I let their story illuminate the principles that I might have, that somebody else would just write about it in a list. So the, the, the simple way to say it is, I have found that to write in such a way that people are moved by story, um, by the stories that I tell, is the most effective way. If you think about the sermons you've heard or the great speakers you've heard, often it's the stories they tell you remember the longest. In fact, brain scientists tell us that mm -hmm. this is the truth, that stories allow the human brain to organize material, uh, be moved by it and remember it longer than any other single method of communication. Mm -hmm. So you guys will probably a month from now, remember what I've told you about my experience in Berlin more than you'll remember some of the details, other details that I've said. Why? Because it was in a story form. So write stories, write them powerfully, write them with purpose. That's, that's, that's what I do. And I think it's what's, what's made the difference. Mm. Thank you, sir. So I know Jordan says something along the lines of, uh, Jordan Peterson says something along the lines of, of if you have the ability to, to write well and speak well, and if you can communicate in those two forms, it shows that you're able to think well, and that becomes the, all the skill set you'll ever need. You know, everything else just kind of comes out of that. And it's just, it is such a powerful thing to be able to do. And it's, it's such a, a thing that we have turned into, um, you know, I'm just speaking from an academic standpoint. It is something that we have turned into this conveyor belt game of piecing these things together um, that is really just stripping our youth of, of the understanding of how powerful and how wonderful and how um, enriching those styles of communication can be. You know, we've really stripped that from young people and we don't, uh, we don't get back to that. And I know Acton Academy is trying to work to, you know, we're trying to work to flip at that. And that's how we start. We start with saying, Hey, Let's just talk stories. Tell us a story. Yeah. Write down a story. Yeah. We're not gonna worry about which part's an adverb right now and which part's a you know past participle and all that. I, I you know, I play mad libs with my kids and they're like, Dad, you know, give me this. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I really don't even know those pieces. <laughs> I can write yeah. decently well, I can communicate well. I, I don't know those pieces, you know, and I, it's so powerful to get back to that story. It's such a powerful thing. Let me just say one thing real quick to you guys, and that is that one of the things my firm in D.C. does is coach people to be better speakers. Mm 
Mm. Here in D.C., every congressman wants to be a senator. Every senator wants to run for president. Every general wants to go in the private sector. And our schools these days don't tend to emphasize uh, public speaking, oral communication. Mm -hmm. Um, So people run into a wall. And Warren Buffett recently did an article in which he said, you can double, you can double your value in the marketplace and in the world by learning to speak well. Um, And so it's not just window dressing. It's not just drama. It's not just, you know, putting lipstick on a pig as the, as the Southern, my Southern friends say, Um, it is learning how to present yourself powerfully. And I know you guys do this. That's one of the reasons I wanted to reaffirm this. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I hadn't planned to go into that field of coaching my team and I do it uh, with a lot of people who are well-known. Um, if you see people debating on Congress, you're probably seeing our clients on both sides um, because we'll work with people who basically agree with us on the core issues. Sure. Um, and it, I, what I'm saying is this is an important thing. Focus on speaking. Focus on speaking well. Let people coach you. Let people watch you. Watch your own videos. Listen to your own audio. You become a really good speaker mm-hmm. um, because we used to say, that the written word was going to replace the spoken word, but we proved that's proven not to be true with our cameras and all that. Um, You, you've got to speak well in our generation. And I know that's what you're working on. I just want to say, throw yourself into it even more firmly, whatever your fears, whatever your hesitance, uh, whatever your weaknesses, get better at speaking publicly. It's essential. Yes, sir. So well said. Yeah. And I could not agree more. And that's, that's part of the reason I'm so excited about what we're doing. Um, you know, in May at the, at the Man Uncaged event, it's, it's, I've had the distinct pleasure of speaking at a, a number of events over the past decade. Um, and the majority of events, uh, the speakers across the board, you know, it's, it's hit or miss and there's some good, there's some not so good. There's everywhere in between. And, um, what we've got there as far as a lineup and, and, you know, everybody that's, uh, I'm, it's going to be powerful, you know, and a good communicator. I love it. Uh, Parker, you're up, sir. Thank you so much for coming on here. And my question for you is, what would you define maturity as? Maturity is not letting your passions rule you. Maturity is viewing the world through a lens that you've examined first. In other words, you're not just reacting to the world, you're viewing it through a set of assumptions, a set of beliefs that you hold dear. Maturity is knowing that you cannot do life alone, that you have to have mentors, you have to have teachers, you have to have other people, um, and that you have to accomplish, uh, that you are only going to accomplish, fulfill your destiny if you have the humility to allow others to speak into your life. Mm -hmm. And then I would also say uh, that maturity is a matter of walking rightly with God. I'm not just adding that at the end, like a little altar call. Um, I could have put it first. For me, maturity is stepping into the fullness of what God has intended for your life. Uh, and the rest of the things then come with it. Awesome. All right, Benaya, I'm going to let you have, uh, I know you're jumping back in and Aiden, I'm not sure if your hand is still up, sir. Um, if it is, I'll get you. Okay, no problem. Then Benaya, I'm going to let you uh, get the last one here from, uh, from the young men. Go ahead, sir. Um, so I'm going to be giving a, uh, speech. I'm actually still figuring out the date, but I'm going to be giving a speech to my youth group on, um, human trafficking awareness. I've done one before this. Um, it was my first time ever doing a public speech, but I wanted to do it again. And, uh, yeah, can I get some of your insight and, uh, 
some advice to uh, go with this? Tell story. Find one. I know you're going to give the macro stats, 48 million people worldwide trafficked, 17% of them children. But those, those are big numbers and they don't often land on people. I mean, what do I do with 48 million? I don't know how to respond to that maybe. Mm -hmm. So if you can tell the story of one trafficking survivor, and by the way, I'll be happy to help you offline with that. I had an organization that's about trafficking. Uh, we can get some stories into your hands. Mm -hmm. um, but tell the story. I'm going to make up a name here, Joni. And Joni's parents, maybe she lives in uh, Romania. Joni's parents sold her into trafficking. And she was used as a prostitute for some years. And then finally she was rescued. Okay, that's just a quick flyover story. If you'll tell that story, tell the heartbreaking story of what's going on, you'll draw them in. If you just say trafficking is a problem, 48 million, most of them children, this is really bad, we got to do something. That's, mm -hmm. you, you understand, that's a little light. But if you'll help them understand the human side of it, if you'll help them understand that if they've flown on an American aircraft recently, of Delta or American Airlines, it's very possible there are traffickers on those flights. And if they see an adult with a little child that doesn't seem to be their parent, uh, you know, their parent or their grandparent, that could be trafficking. I, I've worked with Delta Airlines on their anti-trafficking effort. Mm -hmm. You hear them make announcements on their planes these days um, because this is happening all around us. And then, by the way, you might also as, as want to say, you know, if, you're, if, if you or anybody in your family is paying for porn, they're paying for traffickers. They're funding mm -hmm. traffickers. Porn yep. in our generation is that not only we all know what it does to men and how it destroys lives and families, but it's also funding trafficking. So a guy picks up a porn magazine, pay for something in a hotel room, whatever, he's funding, he's funding trafficking around the world. So if you bring the battle, move them, tell them the stats, move them in their hearts, and then give them a battle plan. Make them feel like the battle is not just somewhere in New York or London or, you know, Bombay, some far off, you know, third world country thing, but right down the street, it's happening right down the street. By the way, a lot of the girls that my group has been involved in rescuing from trafficking got plucked out of the mall mm. in let's say Dallas. So this is not just something happening in third world countries. This is something that happened with traffickers who were taking middle-class kids out of the mall. And yeah, Dallas was one of the places. So bring it home, put it right in their porch, tell them they can make a difference. You'll do well. Love it. You bet, buddy. Mm, my friend, you taking an hour of your time is something that I, I, you know, there's no way that we can repay that. I would love to at least support you any way that we can uh, possibly do that. So is there anything we can do, whether it's, uh, you know, can we plug the book? Can we do, what can we do to, to support you and what you have going on? Well, the, the most important thing, and, and you already know what it is, is pray for me because I've got a lot going on, a lot of spiritual battle around what I do. Mm. But just promise me sometime I can hang with these guys. Just sometime have me out to your facility or one of your conferences or let me eat a burger with some guys or something. Now that, now that we live a little bit closer, I love you're, it. If you're, in North, you're in North Carolina, you said? Yes, sir. That's correct. These guys, and we've got about 20-ish, 20 22 of them coming uh, for our first live event here in a couple of weeks uh, out here in the Asheville area, too. Well, that would be too soon for me, but I mean, sometime you're yes, only sir. in North Carolina. That's that's less than a day's drive for me. Or you yes, can come up to DC, put a, put a bunch of guys in a bus, come up to DC, and I'll walk over, take you around the city. Anyway, sometime, let me hang with these guys. I want to be inspired by them. 
I love it. That's an honor. My friend, I appreciate you. Um, I want to, uh, you know, support you again, any way, any way possible. And I'm just so dang grateful for you, you guys. Let's give a big thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, okay, guys. See you again here shortly, my friend. Thank you again. Appreciate you so All right, much. Buddy. All right. God bless. Love you guys. Bye, you, bye. Sir. The one and only Mr. Stephen Mansfield. Uh, what an honor. What a pleasure. Uh, definitely recommend checking out his new book, uh, checking out anything he has written. If you haven't uh, seen it before, check out stephenmansfield.tv. Uh, see what that man is up to. And he's also going to be uh, partnering up with myself uh, and some other amazing uh, men in our Man Uncaged event uh, that is coming up May 7th in Roseville. Don't worry if you can't make the California live date. We are going to uh, make sure that gets out to the masses afterwards as well. Uh, and appreciate you all uh, listening to what we got going on here. Appreciate you all continuing to share and let people know about what we got going on here. And I uh, just hope everybody here uh, continues to pour into the young leaders in their lives. We're going to continue to do so on this end. Hope you guys have a great day. We'll catch you next time on The Essential 11.